graduating Amherst College with a dual degree in French and history, a master's from Oxford University, also in history, and an MBA from Duke University, our guest today, Nick Berling, has steadily built a career in tech working in product management. Throughout his career, Nick has held down titles like consultant, project manager, product manager, VP of product, principal product manager, CEO, co-founder, and head of product strategy. Working for the likes of IBM, Blue Stripe, Microsoft, and these days, Acme General. Nick has also started two different companies, Stackforce and Illum Hire. So be sure to keep listening as we check in with Nick Berlin and learn about his career in product management and his growth into the executive suite. You're listening to the Developmentor Podcast, hosted by Grant Ingersoll. We have one goal on the show, to help you build a successful career in tech, no matter where you're from or where you're going. We do this by showcasing interesting people working across a variety of roles in tech and deep dive into their why. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com or follow us on Twitter at developmentor. Hey, Nick. Welcome to Developmentor. Thanks for joining me. Hey, great to be here. I really appreciate it. I love the show. Yeah, and no, I appreciate it. Now, uh, you know, for our listeners, Nick and I both went to Amherst College way back in the day. I think this is my third, maybe fourth guest from Amherst on. So, but I don't think we really crossed paths on the tech side there, uh, perhaps maybe just via sports. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, but I think as we'll get into at that at that point in my life, I I certainly never envisioned that I would be working in tech. I I kind of envisioned myself going off to law school, uh, carrying on with the family tradition. So, yeah, well, and that that's probably a a good segue because uh, you know before we get into the tech and product management side, you know, I mentioned in your lead in there, you know, French and history. It doesn't exactly scream tech, although we have had. Uh, history major on the show before. I don't think I've had a French major on it. But, you know, walk me through like, you know, high school, Nick, undergrad, Nick, and deciding to do that. What were you thinking in terms of, you know, where you were going to work, how you were going to build your career? Absolutely. Yeah. So as, as I just mentioned, sort of, as I've learned in later reflection, kind of the path of least resistance for me was I always thought that I was going to go into career in law. I uh, come from four generations of lawyers. My dad was a corporate lawyer in Boston for 30 years. And, you know, law was always uh, intellectually fascinating to me. Really kind of the turning point was uh, I now uh, realize I had the very good fortune of deciding to go work as a paralegal after returning from, from Oxford, you know, I was going to be applying to law school, figured, hey, might as well go get some experience. And so I joined a firm in Boston called Chotal and Stewart, one of the big corporate firms there in the intellectual property uh, division. And turns out that was an incredibly fortuitous thing because what I learned there was while intellectually interesting to me, the world of corporate law was definitely not something that I wanted to pursue, you know, just from a kind of a lifestyle and from a being inside the belly of the beast. So, you know, I kind of had some soul searching that I had to do, but it was also lucky that a lot of my peers, a lot of my friends, and actually my brother-in-law eventually were deep into the tech scene in Boston at the time. 
And as I was kind of trying to figure out, you know, what I was going to go do, I ended up taking a, a job at a small boutique uh, PR and, and marketing consulting firm that worked exclusively with software startups. And, you know, by virtue of sort of having to get in, you know, coming from a true liberal arts background and never even touched anything to do with technology, specifically not, you know, coding, this was sort of my jump in the deep end have to go learn about these businesses, but coming at it from a perspective of somebody who didn't have a background in tech, in a lot of ways was, I think, what ultimately helped me start to go down the path of product management because I had no choice but to sort of look at it through the eyes of the customers of these businesses, figure out, you know, what is the value in what they're offering? You know, how do I help translate what these founders are showing us into marketing messages and concepts and value propositions that were going to appeal to their customers, that were going to appeal to the media that were covering them. And that was kind of like my first sort of jumping in and exposure to the tech world and kind of quickly gave me a real taste for it. And, and you know, after a year and a half of doing that, I kind of very quickly realized you know, I'd be a lot more excited if I were on the side of actually building these products and services versus just representing them as their, you know, marketing consulting firm. And so, you know, that took me into the first startup that I ever joined. I uh, joined a little company no one would have ever heard of called Memora. And we were building something we call the personal server, basically the idea of, hey, look, with the explosion of digital photography with, you know, at the time, the explosion of MP3s and digital audio with email becoming pervasive, you know, what if we could actually have this device that sat inside someone's home, give them their own email server, their own ability to build shared music albums and photo albums. We got all the way to actually being featured inside of uh, the personal tech section in Business Week magazine. I still remember that was sort of my crowning achievement, but also had the misfortune of incorporating in the fall of 2000, and we got crushed by the dot-com bubble. <laughs> and that, that kind of set me on my path. I kind of got the, the taste. I got all of the lessons that you get by sort of pouring your heart and soul into something and then you know seeing it fail, which I think, frankly, is one of the best lessons you can have as an entrepreneur and as someone who's been in tech. And that kind of pushed me in the direction of, okay, let's, let's go get some experience with some brand name companies. And that kind of put me on the path towards business school. I want to pull back on a couple of things here and come back to the business school question. So, you know, out of college, I believe you went and you, that's when you went to Oxford and then came back and we're going to go into law school. What were some of the symptoms and or feelings or things you were having while doing that paralegal work? You know, you mentioned kind of being in the belly of the beast. Like, what were some of the things that were really like, you know, just, I don't know if it was a siren going off or just like that uneasy feeling where, you know, you, you felt like you were on this path and then, oh, wait, hey, I've got to back off from this. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, and, and the thing is, sort of my exposure to the law had primarily been through, you know, conversations over dinner, you know, many times arguments uh, with my father, with my sister, who, you know, had a brief career in, in the law as well. And once I went in and was working as a paralegal, keeping track of your, your day in six-minute increments, the sheer weight of all of the administrivia that you have to deal with. And I didn't see room for any notion of creativity in that. But at the same time, I was getting these glimpses because by virtue of working in the, in the IP department, you know, I was seeing these entrepreneurs coming in who were filing patents. I was seeing, you know, getting an opportunity to read through some of these patent disclosures and, and helping with patent filings. 
you know, I started to see the, the interesting side of it, which to me, you know, like you said, kind of, it was a siren going off in my head of, wait a minute, that looks a lot more exciting, you know, again, in terms of being the creator, as opposed to, you know, the grease in the gears. <laughs> and that was really it. And, and I, it, it literally was sort of a, you know, I, I lost my deposit to NYU law school. Like it was a last minute thing. Actually, I give a lot of credit to one of, one of my best friends to this day, a guy who I live you know, very, very close to out here in, in Portland, Oregon, um, sat me down one day. We were, at the time we were roommates, we had gone to high school together. And he said, look, I've heard you talking, like, do you really want to go do this? And he sort of forced me to be a bit more introspective and kind of realize, no, I don't. And fortunately, I, you know, I followed through on that. Well, and I imagine too, like, you know, you mentioned coming from a long lineage of lawyers, that that can be a tough decision to, you know, get out of the family business, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. And and I actually, you know, I, I still remember it to this day. I mean, my father, I give him all the credit in the world, never, ever made me feel pressure to go you know, sort of join the family business, so to speak, it was always, yeah, you know, great. That's if you're, if you're interested in it, but you know, I kind of went and I had lunch with him. I still remember we, we had lunch at the MFA in Boston and I sat down and said, you know, dad, I, I actually think that I needed to make a, a switch here. And he was completely open to it. And he's like, look, you, you need to do something that you're going to be passionate about. And so fortunately I got nothing but support. And a lot of that pressure was really kind of my own internal pressure uh, up until that point. Well, that's fantastic to have that kind of support. So we kind of get through the dot-com bust here for our listeners who aren't, you know, familiar. You know, it's pretty, pretty dark times, but uh, you mentioned then you wanted to go and be at a big company and kind of learn the lessons. So you go off to IBM. What are some of the key lessons that you did learn while at IBM about how to be a product manager? In a lot of ways, I don't think that IBM excels in product management, but I had a couple key things that, that worked in my favor. One was they have an, an internship called Extreme Blue, which is this you know, very selective internship, but one of the best things you could ever do if you want to kind of get exposure to what it is like to work at a company. They take one MBA student, pair them with students who are either rising seniors, some are master students in computer science, bring you in and all these different groups within IBM will put in funding and basically over a summer project in between first and second year in business school, you are asked to go figure out a business model for some piece of technology that this one of these groups has brought to you. And you get to go do presentations. I mean, we literally presented this to, at the time, um, Sam Palmazano was the CEO of IBM. And so that kind of first foray into it was just you know fantastic in terms of getting a very quick exposure to kind of all levels of what it's and all the different groups that are involved with it. And so I mentioned sort of two key things that went in my favor. One was getting to work in that program. Second was I had a phenomenal executive mentor, a guy by the name of Mike Regal, who has since left IBM and is now um, COO of a very successful cloud infrastructure company. But he had been a guest lecturer at Pequa, at Duke's uh, business school where I was. And I looked him up when I joined IBM and he agreed to be my mentor. And he was really instrumental in kind of giving me kind of outside tutelage. Because to be honest, like I said, in a lot of ways, I don't think IBM certainly at the time was very good at product management. They were still very in, inward looking kind of technology led as opposed to customer driven. But 
one of the things that I did do while I was there, I sort of took it upon myself to there, you know, and I'm not a big kind of industry certification guy, but there's a group called Pragmatic Marketing, which does this amazing product management course, you know, for any of your listeners, if you've got people who are thinking about breaking into product management, product marketing, I highly recommend it. And it kind of gave me a core foundation. And then I think that, frankly, the biggest thing that IBM probably taught me, you know, other than learning the ins and outs of enterprise software and, you know, working within a big global, you know, monolith was uh, leadership development. So I was part of a program called the Marketing Leadership Development Program, which may sound a little misleading because I was in a product management role, but basically it's high potential people get brought in and you go through this program that gets you exposure to people from different businesses and you work on a project over a year and the leadership training that they put you through and the exposure to senior execs and opportunities to go get get to work with people outside of your sort of day-to-day group was invaluable and that kind of gave me the foundation that I needed to take the next step uh, following IBM. Ah, that's so interesting. Well, and so you mentioned at this time too, getting an MBA. Was that part of joining IBM or were you already on the path to getting the MBA? And I guess, you know, the deeper question is why get an MBA? Right, right. And, and you know, I asked myself that a lot. And frankly, having come out of been part of a, a couple different startups, one, the marketing consulting firm that I mentioned was a startup in and of itself the startup that I mentioned that, that failed, you know, I was sort of thinking to myself, you know, why, why should I go to you know, business school? What's it really going to give to me other than, uh, you know, having a, a name uh, on my resume. And I talked a lot with people that I really trusted well, several of whom had been through business school already kind of had been on the traditional, you know, Boston consulting group and, and McKinsey into, into business school, you know, a couple of years after college and kind of talked with them. And, and the big thing was, really that access to big global technology companies. You know, I had IBM and Microsoft kind of squarely in my sights at that point. And so it was really kind of part of my roadmap. You know, I, you know, after the startup that, that failed, I did management consulting for about a year and a half while I was applying to business school. And kind of my whole plan was, all right, I'm going to go to business school. And frankly, you know, being a French end history guy, like I didn't have statistics uh, in, in college and, you know, had sort of run away from math after I filled my basic requirements. So it was definitely, there was core content in the program itself that was definitely immensely valuable to me. But really what I was looking for was that resume builder access to big global technology companies and obviously building building a network of highly motivated and highly successful people. And that's definitely provided a lot of value to me. In fact, you know, the, the company, so Blue Stripe Software, which recruited me out of IBM, the COO and who was my boss at the time was himself an exec at IBM as well as a, a, a Duke business grad. He did the executive program. And the reason that he selected me was because of those two items on my resume. He knew I ha- would have the kind of core foundation of understanding enterprise software and leadership from IBM and then also the value of the, the Duke MBA. So that, that worked out pretty well. Yeah, I know that makes sense. And I want to get to Blue Stripe here in a minute, but, uh, you know, we've talked around and about product management. You mentioned, I forget what was the name of the company that did the training? Pragmatic Marketing. Pragmatic Marketing. We'll try to link that up in the show notes. But, um, you know, walk me through a little bit about how you approach product management. What do you see as some of the key skills necessary? Like, how did you know, like, product management was the fit for you, like, once you're in that moment? And then how did you go about, you know, besides that course, really building up that product management skill set? 
Yeah, yeah, great question. So it kind of came to me organically. I didn't, you know, I didn't just sort of one day say, oh, I want to go be a product manager. The experience that I had working with all of our clients when I was at that marketing consulting firm, where I had to, you know, come at it from the perspective of their customers to try and help them craft language and marketing campaigns and value props that would speak to other prospective customers. When I went and joined that startup, I was employee number one and I wore 15 different hats and I loved it from fishing ethernet wires through a top floor office space that we had gotten to, you know, being customer support and taking orders to going to the consumer electronics show and you know, trying to hand out flyers to get people interested in what we were doing. You know, th- I love that. I love sort of having the different roles. And whenever someone asks me sort of how I describe product management, it kind of comes back to that because the way I always describe it is the thing I love about product management is you're the, you're kind of the hub of the wheel and you have spokes that go out to all the different disciplines that are involved with you know, researching, designing, building, and selling and scaling a product, right? You have to obviously work very closely with engineering. And for me, not coming from an engineering background and knowing, you know, you, you, know, you can have people who go out and teach themselves to code, that, you know, that's, that's not me, and I was self-aware enough to know that. But, you know, working incredibly closely with engineers, being able to be the mouth of the customer, the voice of the customer, and be able to kind of work with them, obviously, is core and fundamental. But just like that, you need to be able to work with the outbound side, right? With marketing, with sales, you need to be able to work with finance and and think about pricing and think about it from an operational perspective, you know, even more so now as you're into the world of software as a service and uh, et cetera. So that was the thing that I loved about it. And I kind of as I started to get more exposure to sort of traditional, what people call product management, that came through some of my consulting engagements. And then, you know, as I went into business school and really kind of was out, you know, talking with alums from Duke and whatnot, only then did I sort of say, oh, yeah, the thing that I want to go do is kind of represented largely by that role. And then pragmatic marketing kind of gave me a really nice framework for thinking about the discipline and the various different skills. And so, like, coming back to your question of, like, what do I think are the skill sets? Number one is being customer centric. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter what kind of background you come from, whether you're you know, an engineer who's actually been building software or hardware or any kind of product before. It doesn't matter whether you're coming at it from a sales perspective, from a marketing perspective. You need to be able to put yourself in the shoes of your, your customer understand, you know, what, what is their pain? You know, what kind of impact does that pain have on them? And then, you know, what are the different scenarios, use cases, you know, what we call user stories that are going to help them address that pain? That's, you know, number one. And frankly, that's, you know, not everyone is set up to do that. I've certainly worked with a lot of uh, engineers that have a really hard time with that, right? Because they come from the perspective of, oh, no, 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 the customer's an idiot. I know how to do this. And I've also met many engineers. In fact, a couple of the people who worked for me, one in particular worked for me at Bluestripe, is just one of those guys that was brilliant and could make that transition from, you know, he was the, one of the first engineering hires, kind of had the, what, what I call the PM gene because he could kind of step outside of that, those shoes and, and think from the customer's perspective. So you mentioned this notion of customer centric. Like, what's an example, like, you know, a practical way like that comes forward? Because I think, you know, a lot of us engineers over the years, you know, we hear this and, you know, I've certainly, I know what you're talking about because I felt that pain too of, you know, when you're in a startup, you have to go figure this out because otherwise, you know, no amount of tech is going to get you product market fit. 
listening to customers is going to do that. But like, what are some practical things an engineer might do or a budding PM might do to develop that empathy? Yeah. So, I mean, at the end of the day, there's really one key thing, which is get outside the, you know, obviously and saying about to say that in these times, obviously it gets challenging. So maybe it's, you know, get outside your virtual office space and go live in the shoes of someone who you think might represent a customer, right? So if you're super, super early on, you're just trying to find, hey, you know, I have a feeling that there might be this need out there. Great. Go out, talk to these people, listen to them and their terminology. And frankly, the number one thing is listen. Like, frankly, shut up and listen. Too many times you'll get people that'll kind of get in there and they're firing questions. Get in the environment, whether it's over a Zoom call, whether it's on a telephone, or whether, you know, hopefully not too far from now, back to being in person. Live in the world of the person you're talking to and allow yourself to sort of step away from your own bias and your own background. And only then are you going to be able to kind of really start to crystallize and and identify patterns of, okay, I just talked to five people that are like this, and I kept hearing these three pains or these key three challenges. You know, practical, simple thing, just go listen, right? You know, be a sponge. You know, yes, there's certainly going to be cases where you need to kind of prompt someone. They may not be very forthcoming, but find ways to get someone talking and allow them to keep talking and then start doing your pattern matching across multiples of those conversations. I don't care whether you're designing, you know, something that's deeply intricate designed to be, you know, hardcore tech that's going to power some global telecommunication system or whether you're building a consumer facing app that's going to address a much tighter smaller use case. I think the same principle starts uh, applies. Start with who is the customer what is important to them? Why is their life hard today? And what are the common themes that tell me that there's more than one of them? That's the foundational piece. Sorry to jump in there, but you you were going to then say uh, there's maybe one or two other things that you see as key key skill sets. This is sort of a a key lesson that, uh, so a guy named Vic Nyman, who was the COO and one of the co-founders of Blue Stripe Software, uh, uh, just a tremendous mentor to me, you know, he used to always say, synthesize, summarize, and communicate. Like the simple thing. So I talk about, all right, you're out there talking to these people, you, you force yourself to be open, you listen to them, you don't impose your own bias and perspective on what they're saying. One of the arts of product management is then to be able to synthesize what you've learned, right? And this is, this is the same thing when you're talking, you know, from a leadership perspective, and you know, you've got to go maybe brief multiple executives at IBM, or if you're just in talking with your CEO of your you know, 10 push and startup, at the end of the day, you have to be able to take all these different data points, what you've found through these conversations, what you found through competitive research, what you found through your own market research, and you have to synthesize that and distill it down to key points. You know, I'm a huge fan of sort of hypothesis testing as, as a method. So generate a set of questions, right, or a set of hypotheses that say, okay, if I solve pain X for user A, it will help them be you know, 10% more productive and they'd be willing to pay a certain amount for it. Like formulate these concrete hypotheses, test them against the data that you found and then synthesize and then summarize that in a way that is going to, again, whether you're asking your CEO of your 10-person company to go invest you know, 20 grand worth of time and effort 
or whether you're asking for $10 million at a seed project at a big company like IBM or Microsoft, the same is true. You have to be able to synthesize. You have to summarize in a way that's going to be meaningful to get your point across. And then you have to be an incredibly effective communicator. And I think, you know, coming back to the hub and spoke thing that I mentioned before, this is one of, I think, where I see most sort of budding product managers fall short is their ability to empathize with the people that to whom they are communicating, right? The way that I talk to my peer, who's the VP of engineering, is going to be wildly different than the way that I'm talking to a VP of sales or even a VP of marketing or a finance person, right? And so you have to be versatile, you have to be an excellent communicator, and you have to be highly aware of which stakeholder you're talking to, what is going to be important to them? What are they listening for when you're trying to convince them of the value? Again, wherever you are in the product lifecycle, I think the same is true. Thanks for that. Nick. coming back to your career, you know, I mean, there's such good advice in there in terms of product management, but I would love to have you share a little bit more. You know, so you spend, I think, almost seven years at Blue Stripe building out this company that's ultimately acquired. I don't know if you were brought in at the VP level or not, but you know, share a little bit about some of the key pivotal moments for you at Blue Stripe and what, what those meant for your career. So so to, to come to your, your question there, no, so I was, you know, I was brought in to kind of establish and build the product management discipline at Blue Stripe. I was employee 13. Up until that point, they had been the co-founders and the core engineering team. You know, this was a, a, a hard tech company in the sense that, you know, we were building kernel level instrumentation for performance monitoring. And so um, had some of the smartest engineers to this day that I've ever worked with building out the, you know, MVP of that product had, you know, gone and gotten a few different customers to be kind of early beta customers got traction and they were ready to really start to sort of build a discipline around it. So we had, you know, a true agile product development team in place to really try and start scaling that company. So I was brought in to sort of create the foundation and ultimately lead that. I was brought in at a director level and was made VP, you know, a couple of years later. You know, as we think about it, so I joined that company in, in the fall of uh, 2008. And uh, I think we all know what happened a year after that. Um, and that was actually really, really hard. You know, we had start, we had ramped up on engineering, we were getting traction within the, the market, and then all of a sudden the bottom fell out. And, you know, I give a huge amount of credit, and this was an invaluable lesson that I learned, not, not just from a product management perspective, but really from a software startup management perspective. And we had to go through riffs. Uh, that was probably one of the hardest things that I've, I've had to experience in my career, other than having to, you know, fire some people myself um you know there were people that i that i knew and respected again incredibly smart engineers that had to be let go because we needed to keep the you know the ship afloat until the economy would turn around that was pivotal a lot of stories i can't share but some real challenges in terms of you know people having very human reactions to it and a lot of fear as you know people saw us having to go through that riff but you know, again, fortunately, we were able to come out of that strong. We were able to leverage the customers that we had built up until then. And as the economy started to tick back up, we were able to ride that. Like when you think about sort of pivotal transitions, you know, one of the really key things was we were successful, but we weren't experiencing, you know, hockey stick growth. We knew that 
a pass towards this one day going public or something probably wasn't in the cards. We were an on-premise software solution right as cloud was really starting to take, you know, take off. And we could kind of read the tea leaves. Um, and one of the great things that we did there was recognize, as we, we always call it, you know, the need for a big brother. You know, when you're, when you're a startup, right, you think about the different potential exits. One could be a very early stage, probably core, just technology acquisition. Next level up will be, okay, you've actually got some significant customer transaction that's going to drive your multiple. And then, you know, ratcheting up to going public from there. And we kind of were able to evaluate and say, all right, we kind of have a sense where we feel we are. We need to hitch our, our wagon to a bigger train. And this is where you know I give a huge amount of credit again to, to my boss, the COO and founder, who had done something similar with a previous company, where we really shifted our focus. And, and we had started to see a lot of traction, interestingly, with customers that were heavy, heavy Microsoft customers. And we were able to, again, by being out working with customers, listening to, to Microsoft customers, frankly, better than they did, we saw opportunities where we could fill holes in their management portfolio that they just were failing and filling miserably. And ultimately, that was the reason that we, we got acquired. Uh, we kind of shifted our entire outbound. We built what we called the Partner Response Center, which was all about how do we become the best friends to Microsoft sales reps who are out in the field trying to compete with BMC and CA and other big players in the management space. And that was really fun to experience. It was stressful. You know, we had to kind of really look ourselves in the face and say, all right, you know, some of what we had been thinking we were going to do, we're going to shift away from that. We're going to make a big bet on going after the Microsoft ecosystem. And fortunately, it panned out. Well, and then for yourself as well, so you start off director, you move into the VP, like what was the career trajectory like for you as you're learning to, you know, move up the chain, if you will, you're managing larger swaths of a growing organization, I would imagine, right? So what was that like for you? How did you go about acquiring the skills and, and developing what you needed to develop in terms of running a larger organization? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I mentioned, you know, I had kind of gotten a foundation at IBM. When I was recruited out of IBM, I was running a team focused on SOA, service-oriented architecture strategy. And that was actually a huge, a huge asset because while it was incredibly frustrating, uh, that strategy team was the classic, you know, influence over people over whom you do not have authority. <laughs> um, so I had a team of four, four PMs working for me, but we were trying to drive strategy across literally all of IBM, not just within software division, but across the consulting business as well. And so like that was actually a huge piece, right? You know, recognizing the importance of stakeholder management having direct authority, you know, as a manager, that definitely gave me the foundation. And I think that was a, a in fact, I know from discussions with my, my boss at Blue Stripe, um, that was a key reason that, that he selected me. At Blue Stripe specifically, you know, when I joined, I said, you know, one of the, the key things for me is I'm coming here not just to try and, you know, get some equity in a startup that hopefully has an exit, but rather I want to work my way to to being a member of the executive team. And I was very honest with them early on. I was actually considering another job that would have brought me back up to Boston, um, and they kind of got me at the right time. And liking the North Carolina area, as I know you do, I was all too happy to have an excuse to stay there. But it was really important to me from right from the beginning that kind of they understood, they being the COO and the CEO, that my goal was not just to go there again and, and be part of the startup, but rather I wanted to work my way up to be part of the executive team. And then, frankly, 
even though I was very impressed with him, there's no way I really could have known how lucky I was that um, the guy I mentioned, Vic Nyman, really is a tremendous mentor, not not just a boss, and, and really kind of took me under his wing. And as he told me later, he's like, yep, it was music to my ears when you said that, that it was really important to you that you have opportunity to grow. He really did take out extra time and effort in kind of helping me understand what it takes to be an executive, what it means to start kind of building an organization from the ground up and, you know, managing through very challenging times. And so I give a, a tremendous amount of credit there. And, and, and it was some of the most rewarding time in my career by far. What were some of those lessons? You know, I think it's a lot of, of what we talked about, you know, and frankly, like, you know, not, not airing any dirty laundry, like any, any company, we had some challenges in terms of personalities within the company. Uh, we had some moments where there was some pretty significant friction. And I think, you know, if, to the extent that I'll claim credit as sort of one of my attributes, I think empathy and, again, the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes is so, so critical. And, and there's nothing specific about product management, I think, frankly, in any professional career. It's, it's an invaluable asset. And, you know, being able to, even when you're, you know, in a meeting, you, you know, your quarter didn't go well, you're worried because you need to go out and raise a B round, and everyone's stressed and probably hasn't slept enough, you know, being able to kind of lower the temperature and step outside of your own shoes, again, put yourselves in the shoes of the person who's across the table you're trying to convince, that more than anything, I think, has served me well throughout my career. Again, whether it's in Blue Stripe, you know, at the time, a small 13-person company, or when I was, you know, back at a big global company like Microsoft after the acquisition, the same thing holds true. The other thing is one of my sort of things that I'll often tell people that, that end up working for me, look, my goal is for the team that works for me to one day replace me, right? Like I view it as the way you're a successful manager is you, you recognize opportunities for people to grow. You give them those opportunities, you push them to grow. And ultimately the goal is to, you know, get people who are going to make you uh, obsolete and great. Right. I'm, I'm ready. To, if, if I've done that, then I consider myself self-successful. That was another really important lesson that, that I learned through both the executive mentor that I had at IBM, but then also uh, through Vic at, at Blue Stripe. And that's something I've, I've tried to apply across you know, any role where I've got people who are working for me. Yeah, that's fantastic. Basically, people development is, is such a key aspect of moving into that leadership suite. It really is. It's not for everybody, right? I mean, uh, it, as you and I were talking before, right? I mean, it, there's, a, there's a very significant overhead, and that has to be something that you love doing in and of itself because it, it takes up a significant amount of your time when you're in a manager managerial role. Yeah, for sure. Well, so you get acquired and even that, you know, at a startup, it's often a pretty big roller coaster of an experience, especially when you go land at a place like Microsoft. I'm curious what, what lessons you took away from, I guess, both the acquisition of or by Microsoft as well as your time then spent, because this is also like you picked up your family and moved from Raleigh out to Seattle as well, right? So I imagine a lot of going on in the Berlin household as you make this transition. Yes, absolutely. And, and funny, funny little anecdote. So literally, right as we are finalizing, getting through the end of due diligence, literally about to close the deal is when this massive article comes out 
I think there was one in Forbes and one in the New York Times, all about how they're waiting for you know the next massive earthquake uh, that's going to hit in the Cascadia fault line. And I still remember reading to my wife at dinner the term liquefied earth. So anyway, yes, moving out to Seattle had had some. Uh, we were a little trepidatious at first. No, yeah, I think first thing is I had a huge, huge benefit, and frankly, I think for a lot of a lot of the team that didn't have this experience, it, it made it better because I was able to share that with them. The time that I spent at IBM made that transition to Microsoft so much easier because I knew exactly what I was getting in for, right? I mean, I actually, you know, to be honest, the, more so culturally, I was a little bit worried because, you know, frankly, I had interviewed and I, I had an offer uh, from Microsoft out of business school and I didn't take it because I knew people who worked there and hated the culture. You know, this was still in the bomber years and the culture was not something that, that was appealing to me. So that's like the one big fear or concern I had. I knew, you know, of course, like any company that big, no matter how good the, the leadership, you're going to have bureaucracy, you're going to have, you know, politics, et cetera. So I knew that, but I was, I was a little worried about that. And also, frankly, I was a little bit worried about sort of what I had mentioned before at IBM that I saw that it really didn't do product management the way that I, you know, the customer driven sense. Now, the really fantastic thing was that the, so I, uh, we were brought into Microsoft by a group called the Azure Management. And so as the Azure Management team, like responsible for all of the infrastructure application, security, performance monitoring, et cetera, solutions for Microsoft Azure. So fantastic place to be going in terms of it's the heart of the business. It's where all the growth is. But the other great thing is that the leaders over that, uh, over the product management discipline there had actually gone through a major, major push to really drive more customer-centric product management into that organization. They actually had taken an entire group and had them go through a, a Techstars course, uh, Techstars being a you know technology accelerator. And so like I was incredibly, frankly, surprised, but also uh, happily so to find that this group really kind of recognized what I had seen as sort of a deficiency in terms of inward facing to technology centric product management. And, and so that was great because they looked to us as people that could come continue to teach the people who had kind of grown up inside of Microsoft because we were coming in as this startup that had kind of lived and breathed what they saw as the right way of doing things. So that was great. You know, at the end of the day, again, I knew that politics were going to be there and look, to this day, I tell people, I am nothing but the most respect for Satya Nadella and what he has done for that company. And obviously, look, the, the stock price says it all, but culturally, the place is so different from what I had been afraid of. And you know, the level of accountability, the level of focus on, yes, it's a bit of a, a hackneyed term, but growth mindset, you know, it, it really is something that I was amazed at how much the executives were kind of walking the walk in that. So that it was great. And I, I loved my time there. As I tell everyone, look, if I wanted to go work at a big global tech company again, I would go back there in a heartbeat. I have huge amounts of respect for what they're doing. I think Satya is an amazing, amazing leader. But let's talk about the downsides, right? So look, at the end of the day, I spent probably 50 to 60% of my day was trying to coordinate with other teams across other different groups that were related to what we were doing that we're working on somewhat competing and overlapping stuff. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, after I hit my earn out, it was, I always knew I wanted to go back to, you know, something more entrepreneurial eventually. 
but at the end of the day, that's just a reality. When you're in a, a senior leadership position or as you're working your way, certainly up to executive roles, which I wasn't at, at Microsoft, like you're just spending so much of your time coordinating, working across divisional lines. And I kind of wanted to get back to the, hey, let's go build something. Well, that's a great segue because then, you know, I, well, I was going to ask what inspired you to take the leap and build your own companies, but, but perhaps then share, you know, a little bit more of the founding stories of, of these other stack force in particular and some of the, the lessons and you've learned in that process. Having been a part of Blue Stripe, but coming in not as a founder. You know, coming in as someone, you know, I think, as I mentioned, employee 13, having been employee one at the previous startup, I kind of had the bug and I knew, like, look, I want to see if I can go do it as a founder, like truly, you know, grow something from nothing. And then sort of serendipitous, uh, one of my grad school classmates and longtime friend, a guy I met at Oxford, he happened to call me up right as I was approaching my two-year mark at, at Microsoft. And he, you know, he asked me if I'd be willing to do some consulting work for him. So he, he's a lawyer by training, but is himself an entrepreneur. Had started and sold a couple um, software companies, and did a lot of work with uh, the Department of Defense. A lot of work in government contracting. And frankly, initially, I was sort of like, mm, I'm not sure I want to go, you know, do government contract work. But you know, took a call and and listened, and and they were looking at a variety of different topics. You know, some, of course, at the time was blockchain, 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 and folks in the, in the department, <laughs> folks in the Department of Defense, just wanted to put, go, you know, find some way to say they were working on blockchain, even though they didn't have a sense of okay, this is not a tech, you know, blockchain is a technology, not a business. So part of it was okay, you know, help them evaluating business opportunities. They were working with this group called the National Security Innovation Network, which looks at identifying commercial companies that could have technology that applies to DOD needs and pain points. And so I kind of did some work with them. And, you know, my my friend had said, you know, hey, look, I'd like you to do a little bit of this. And look, if we can find some things that are interesting, I think I've got a way to you know, go look at lining up some contracts. Would you be interested in you know, potentially jumping out and starting something if we think there's a there there? So I sort of said, yeah, let's see. And we really started to dig in and we ended up focusing a lot around the, the talent management space. And you know, frankly, having spent the seven years at Blue Stripe and before that at IBM, it wasn't in the management space, but I was in the application integration middleware space. So kind of in the guts of big enterprise software systems, you know, I was kind of ready to see if there was something different and new. And so as I was helping them, you know, more as sort of a business consultant, as a product consultant, looking at different things, we started to focus in around talent. And you know, one of the big things that they were hearing was actually uh, one of their internal customers was the National Guard. And the National Guard it sort of would come forward and say, look, we have this big problem. We've got over 400,000 men and women in the National Guard who have dual lives. You know, I've got someone who's a you know, tank operator within the, in the Guard, but they're an electrician uh, by day. I've got someone who's a paralegal and who's doing, you know, insert uh, operational role here. And we have no idea what their true skill sets are, how those skill sets within their civilian lives can be brought to bear. We have these special projects that we need to get done. But, you know, and as they would say, we love to hate LinkedIn because we don't know whether we can trust anything that someone's put on their LinkedIn profile. Come on, you mean uh, the PowerPoint, you know, skill set is not like expert in PowerPoint isn't real? True story. (laughs) 
Um, so when, when LinkedIn came out with their first blush at the skills tests that you can go get done, and I will tell you, I am very skilled in PowerPoint. Unfortunately, I've spent way too long inside of PowerPoint. I can make PowerPoint do things that it shouldn't do. I took one of their, their skills evaluations and I like failed their level two or something like that because I, because I didn't know this like random name of a menu. It was hilarious. Anyway, I digress. No, so so I started working and we started looking at sort of, okay, you know, what if there were a different way? And it was interesting. My, my, my wife actually comes from an educational testing and measurement background, and they do a lot around looking at these sort of communities of practice around teachers who are going for certification and how do you build groups that can help people to build roadmaps for skills development? How do they do work that they can ultimately share through portfolios that then help them to prove that they've acquired these skills? And so we were kind of talking over what I was learning and listening to these sort of pain points in the National Guard. And that was really the origin of the idea of Stackforce. And, you know, the, the nice thing was we had access to non-dilutive revenue through a, a prime contract uh, through, through the, the DOD. And this is something, you know, which is very closely tied to the work I'm doing now with Acme General. And, you know, for all of the entrepreneurs and, and technology, you know, startups that are out there who might be listening, highly recommend you look at sort of avenues for taking advantage of huge amounts of non-dilutive revenue sources that you can actually tie into through these different government contracts through the small business association. Yeah, I've, I've done those. Uh, I've, I've been at a few places that that's gone that route too. It's, it's uh, the pros and cons like anything, but it is nice to not be getting diluted by, <laughs> by somebody else who doesn't always have your best interests in mind. Exactly. So. And if you're willing to deal with the pain of breaking through this red tape, you know, wall of red tape, you can get uh, significant rewards, but yes, absolutely, there are pros and cons. But anyway, so we had this opportunity that would kind of allow me to, to jump out. I, I encouraged uh, one of the former Blue Stripe software engineers to join me, and we jumped out and started to go look at, okay, what can we do in terms of building an MVP with one of these big internal customers within the Department of Defense? You know, what I'll say is, you know, you know truthfully, Part of the challenge here is we had a lot of promise in terms of engagement with that group, didn't pan out, we had to pivot, and I started working a lot with different universities, some of which were kind of smaller community colleges out here in the Portland area, connected to a couple others, and sort of looking at sort of your classic, where can I find customers that have these pain points? And and that angle was, okay, you've got all these graduates who are coming through what isn't necessarily a, a very well-known school nationally, right? It's not a Harvard, a, a, an Amherst college, of course, but you've got these graduates are coming out. How do you prove to companies that are recruiting on campus that your students are qualified? And so we started looking at uh, test cases there and, you know, we built up some really cool technology and ultimately, you know, I had a challenge that I was dealing with a two-sided market. I fundamentally didn't want to go out and just go try and raise money right out of the gate. I really wanted to try and sort of prove out some value. And, and actually, I think, you know, the, the reality is in, in this funding environment, because the cost of, of getting off the ground of actually, you know, going out and building something and testing it is so low compared to what it used to be, you really have to do that, right? You have to go out and start to prove out product market fit before you're going to go attract, you know, tier one VCs. And so we were kind of going through that. and and ultimately. I was trying to tackle two sides of a two-sided market at once, which a lot of people who know better than I did at the time will tell you that's a, a recipe for disaster. And we kind of got to the point where I said, all right, 
I can keep pushing and, and, and try and kind of really focus in on one side, but ultimately got connected with the folks at, at Acme where literally today I just started as the head of product strategy. And just, it made a lot of sense for us to kind of join forces. Um, Acme General is uh, founded by really a brilliant guy named Dave Bonfili um, himself. He was a, a nuclear sub officer. Um, spent time, you know, in educational roles and doing strategy within the Department of Defense. Ultimately, switched and jumped out, and did uh, operational work within some of the largest hedge funds in the world, and and kind of came home to kind of his roots within in the Department of Defense and recognized opportunities to really help them tackle challenges of how do you drive innovation across the civil military divide, helping internal groups within the Department of Defense around. You know, what are processes, what are ways in which you can drive innovation internally, but then equally, both through consulting work, but ultimately, which is now my role, also through products and services, create opportunities where we can better align incentives, better align problem statements, mission statements within the DOD with commercial solutions through various different vehicles. And sort of that's what we're, that's the journey I'm starting on now. And so some of the assets that we built up with Stackforce made a lot of sense to be folded in under Acme. And then we're also looking at a variety of different use cases, one of which is, you know, like I mentioned before, those prime contracts, that it's an extraordinarily inefficient process today. We see huge opportunities for creating automated matching of solution providers and, and problem owners. And so we're really focusing on that. I'm focusing on it very much from a how do I take, again, these problems, these pain points that I hear coming through these consulting engagements that Acme has with its internal DOD customers, how do we find ways of automating solutions to that through software as a service, products and services? That's fantastic. Well, and it, it's pretty rare that I have somebody on day one of their job on the show. So. <laughs> Going maybe a little bit meta here, Nick, tell me about a time when you felt imposter syndrome or perhaps weren't quite sure what to do next and how you figured it out. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, I definitely suffer from it. I know, you know, certainly I think we all do to some extent, whether we recognize it as such. And actually, uh, it was interesting. I was I was helping so this other company that I'm helping advise and get off the ground, a loom hire, which focuses very much on this sort of talent management, you know, career development perspective, but specifically for what we call midlife professionals, so people in their kind of fifties and on. And we literally just posted an article on on uh, imposter syndrome. So timely question. The strongest time I felt that was really kind of six months into the Stackforce experience, you know, and anyone will tell you that the the co-founder and in particular the CEO seat is a very lonely seat, kind of got to a point where it was clear that sort of some of the promise of engaging with that internal customer within the DOD just wasn't panning out, you know, had people who had, had taken a risk and joined me as part of my uh, development team. And yeah, that was that was hard. And frankly, I think what I did, and I think the best thing you can do is I kind of went to my personal advisory board and it's something I would recommend to anybody, which is, you know, not, and I, when I say personal advisory board, it may sound a little bit corny, but I, I mean it very perfectly because obviously, you know, you can go say, you know, to your partner, your wife, you know, your husband, whatever it is, oh, I'm having a terrible time. I don't believe it. And they might, you know, tell you exactly what you want to hear to make you feel better. Personal advisory board is, you know, who are people that are going to tell you tell it to you straight, who are people going to say, yeah, you messed up or just as likely, hey, look, you're, you're being too hard on yourself and, you know, talk with a few people and 
that's for me is the way that I get through that because otherwise I, I can definitely kind of sit and stew and, and be my own worst enemy. And so it kind of comes back to that empathy thing that I was mentioning before, which is being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes, but also being willing to be open to other people and recognize there are attributes that I have that I know can complement and make a team better with, based on other people on that team. And there are things that I know that I don't have. And so you know, finding those people that can then fill that for me, not just in a, in a work context, but in sort of a professional context has been hugely important to me throughout my career. Yeah, it's so important. Any tips for how, do, you know, how do you separate out, you know, this is one, something I've actually struggled with throughout the years is like, you know, where's the line between friends and, you know, kind of like you said, hey, you kind of build each other up. And then also those people, though, who... I don't know. Accountability is not the right word because I don't think like necessarily your mentor or personal advisor, like they're not necessarily holding you to account, but they are showing you maybe where you're blocked to, to put it nicely, I guess. I, I want to say where you're being an idiot, but you know, like, you know, like how do you develop that? How did you build that out? You know, I, I think frankly, to some degree, it's part of my personality. I kind of seek out uh, those kinds of relationships. And I'm, I've always been somebody who is attracted to diverse groups of people. And I have a pretty diverse group of, of friends. So I think some of that may just be kind of a little bit the way that I'm made. But at the same time, you know, I, you know, and to be honest, I, there are people who have worked for me who aren't at all like that, who really did struggle to sort of get themselves out of their own shell and be willing to go say, you know, hey, I'm struggling with this. Can you give me some honest feedback? So self-awareness, no matter what, is probably the single greatest ingredient because whether you're self-aware that you aren't that person and you need to kind of push yourself and find somebody else who is that way so they can kind of nudge you in the right direction, or even if you recognize that, yeah, look, I'm, I'm somebody who can open myself up and be willing to hear criticism and, and critiques, you still have to go do it. And so again, I kind of go back very early in my career, I found people who are excellent mentors and that's the key. And, you know, I gave an example earlier of the COO of Blue Stripe, who was both a mentor and a boss that that can be rare where someone can kind of step themselves out of their boss role and, and really give you advice from a mentorship perspective. So for that reason, I often, or I always recommend to people find mentors who are not in your direct report to chain, right? Find people. So like, the executive that I that I mentioned at IBM was in a completely different division, and that was hugely important. So find mentors early on. Those people are going to be the people that become that sort of personal advisory board over time. You know, at the end of the day, you've got to be able to sort of have the BS detector isn't the right way because it's not that's too negative. But you've got to recognize like, okay, yes, you know, in my case, what my wife is telling me is making me feel better and great. But you know what, I also know that she wants me to be happy and isn't necessarily giving me the full honest feedback that this other person would. You, you got to have the emotional maturity and the self-awareness to sort of say, all right, I'm in this situation. Do I have people who can give me honest and objective feedback on it? And just keep asking yourself that question. Like, okay, um, this person just you know told me I'm being too hard on myself and I feel a lot better. Is there somebody else who's going to give me a different perspective? And I, I don't know. I think, I think to a large degree, you, you can't have enough of those kind of inputs. And again, it, it comes down to do you trust that person? Do you do you believe they're coming from a position that's going to help whatever, whether you are feeling down, stuck, or or frankly, whether you are things are going great and you're kind of looking at how you ride the momentum. 
Yeah. Well, it's not something that happens overnight either. Even though like we all wish it, it did because sometimes you just need it in the moment. Right. Yeah. And it's work. It's work. And, and in fact, actually one of the, one of the best, so for anybody who's working in larger organizations in particular, but I, th I think it to some degree applies even, even kind of really wherever you are. One of the best thing, a piece of advice that that exec at, uh, at IBM told me was, look, 70% of your day job is your day job. The remaining 30% is what's next. And, you know, being purposeful, coming up with a plan and holding yourself to account, um, whether that's because you're incredibly self-motivated and you can do that, or whether you've got your personal advisory board that is giving you kind of those checkpoints, it's work. It's not going to happen by itself, right? Um, and the key thing is you have to cultivate it and you have to find, find those relationships and build them and you will reap the rewards, but it is work. Absolutely. Nick, it's been amazing to have you on the show. Final question for you. Where can our listeners uh, best follow you, engage with you, learn more about you and your career path? Yeah, um, would love to talk to Andy and everyone. Hit me up through LinkedIn, certainly. Or frankly, if anyone wants to shoot, shoot me an email, would love to, to hear from you, nberling at gmail.com. Mention that you, you heard me on, on the show. And yeah, would love to anybody, whether you're thinking about entering in the product management product strategy role or interested in perspective whether you, you know, are already there and looking at the next step or anything please please reach out that's fantastic nick and for our listeners as always those connection points will be in the show notes nick thank you again so much for joining me and thanks for having me as i said i love the show and i'm really happy to be a part of it Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Developmentor podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Even better, please leave us a review. If you want to hear older episodes, leave feedback, or sign up to be a guest, please visit us at developmentor.com. If you'd like to support the show, there are three ways you can help out. One, make a donation via Patreon. Two, if you're a software engineer looking for your next gig and wanting to practice interviewing, use our referral link to the interviewing.io platform. And three, buy your next tech book from Manning Publications using our affiliate link. All of those links can be found at developmentor.com slash support dash us. That's S-U-P-P-O-R-T dash U-S. All one word. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Referrals are the lifeblood of any podcast. Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move one step closer to finding your path.